Okay, welcome back, folks. This is the Bibliotheques Podcast, and today we have two very special guests with us. We are talking about A Knight's Tale with Cody's brother, Tony, who you know from our True Grit movie recap, and a new guest to the pod, my brother, Matthew. Welcome both, guys. How's it going? I'm great. Love to be going great. Real quick, before we jump into um into any of the specifics of this movie, we invited you guys on because the assumption is that we all love this movie. But can I just get like baseline? Maybe, Tony, you can we can start with you. If you were to like rank this movie, would it fall in like your top ten, top fifty, top hundred? Just kind of like broad strokes here. Well, in the broadest strokes, I guess it would probably rank top 50. I don't think it's cracking the top 10. Okay, probably, but top 50 is pretty good. not that close. But, okay. Yeah. Matthew, how about you? See, I almost feel like it's a dark horse. Like, I don't even think about it. <laughs> like, you're like, oh, is this a top 10? I don't, probably not. But if you're like, is this a top 50? And then you do 50 and then you'd be like, what about a Knight's Tale? I feel like I would throw it in there. I don't know. It's such a, such a hilarious movie. I don't know. Yeah, yeah, for me, this is a solid forties. <laughs> okay, well, Cody, that's yeah. that's actually pretty good because like think about like I whenever we do like movies that are uh, beloved just to us, this is definitely a one for us movie <laughs> recap. And it's it, just think about it like kind of like I like what you said, Matthew. Like if you're listening through a bunch of movies that you just kind of want to throw on because you just want something to throw on, and then someone just goes like, "What about a Knight's Tale?" That immediately immediately goes on like your short list of like things yeah. we're watching tonight. If yeah, like, if you got exactly. nothing else. No one wants to watch like a new thing. No one wants to like watch a super long movie. No one wants to watch like a specific genre movie. If someone's like, "What about a Night's Tale?" I'll be like, "Well, if none of you can figure out a better movie, that's what we're probably gonna watch." So right, it. I think that is the perfect description for like where this movie should fall for all of us is just labeling it a what about movie. <laughs> Like, hey, what what about this one? All right, so let's get into some of the specs of this movie. So real quick, it was released in 2001, written and directed by Brian Helgeland. This guy, I don't know if you guys are super familiar with this director, but he also directed Payback, The Order, 42, and Legend, the one with like Tom Hardy playing like two different dudes. Tom Um, Hardy squared. Yep. Yeah. (laughs) Right. That's Uh, right. But he's probably better known actually as a screenwriter. He wrote LA confidential mystic river. And one of the movies that I just was like kind of surprised by the 2010 Ridley Scott Robin hood. Like he was the screenwriter on that. So anyway, didn't know anything about this guy. And I'm just like, Oh shit. All right. Well, a little bit. I love a ton of his things. Yeah. (laughs) So this movie, uh, as we all know, is starring Heath Ledger, Mark Addy, uh, Shannon Sossaman, Rufus Sewell. Sewell. Fuck me on pronunciation. As soon as I start reading names on this podcast, dude, it's just downhill. Uh, Paul Bettany and Alan Tudyk. Box office for 2001. So this movie had a budget of $65 million and took in $117 million. It was close. I thought interesting. It was a close like 50-50 split in the box office. I don't know if you guys like ever care about this kind of thing, but the fact that it did just about as well evenly domestically in the United States versus abroad seems interesting to me. No? 
Yeah, I mean, I think I, I don't know, I, I, I sort of get it. I mean, I guess it's it's a little bit interesting to try and think of like what the international markets were like in 2001 and pre 9-11. Yeah. So very different time. And uh, yeah, I feel like this maybe I can see this playing in China. That's usually the question we have to ask, right? Like, is this going to be super popular in China or not? I feel like this is a kind of a, enough of a romp that it could be. It's also probably pretty popular in Europe and the UK because it is about like European feudal entertainment. Right. Just, right. The, just the actual subject matter. Seems like yeah, the last joust is in, is in London, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. That, I mean, sure. so the whole movie was actually filmed on location in the Czech Republic. The whole thing was done mm. in there in a studio in Prague. But 2001 was like just this crazy year for movies. And I'm just going to do the first five box office that year. This movie came in at 37 on the 2001 list for box office earnings. 2001, Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone, Lord of the Rings, Fellowship of the Ring. Monsters Inc., Shrek, and Ocean's Eleven. So I don't even care like where you rank, but like, you're not you're not cracking top five with those movies. No, no shot. Five, yeah. just instant classics too. Not even yeah. like oh, like those are like a big summer movie, and then you don't think about it. Just like really, really all timers. Yeah. yeah. So for awards and critical reception, what do you guys think? Just give out, shout out your best guess for what the actual critic review, like the tomato meter is on Rotten Tomatoes for this movie. I was doing a little bit of research beforehand, so I won't say, okay, um, okay. but I do know I did do the best. Yeah. So there's a, there's a hint for Cody and Tony here. Okay. Uh, I'm, I'm guessing mid 40s. Mid 40s for Cody and Tony. What was it? 76. Okay. So the actual, like the critic tomato meter is 59%. Ah, split it. And then the audience score is 79%. And the <laughs> the weird the weird thing that I was seeing just in like the kind of main takeaway on Rotten Tomatoes is it's like basically saying once you get past the I think what it calls is just like the anachronism. So adding in all of mm. the kind of like modern music and just pop yeah. culture kind of stuff in it. After you get past like the fun of that, it's basically just Rocky on horseback. <laughs> yeah. Rocky with lances is what I was reading. <laughs> yeah. Right. So I, I don't know how you look at a movie, say Rocky with lances and give it a 59%, but that's, that's just me. I don't really well, get how that's a criticism. Yeah, right. Well, I, exactly. I, I would be like, I think it's for this movie. Yeah. We'll probably get into this later too, but I think a lot of this movie is like, you can't take it too serious. I think it does a good job and it seems very self-aware of being like a lot. There's a lot of jokes and uh, like starting the movie off with, we will rock you, for example. Coming and I feel like the trumpets. <laughs> exactly. Oh my God. We have to talk about that later. That killed me. But what I was going to say is I feel like as a movie reviewer, maybe a little bit more like taking it too serious, you know? Right, so. like get all these fucking snobs out of the theater. Like, like can we just get a, yeah. a guy's guy in there to review this fucking yeah. movie? We have an electric guitar coming out of a trumpet. <laughs> like, what is going on? <laughs> I will say, I think one of the beauties of filming this uh, movie on location in uh, the Czech Republic is that the extras they found to play, like, <laughs> the feudal commoners in the stands, Cody. it's like they built a time machine. 
and found all the serfs they could and brought them back and showed them jousting and then sent them back in time because these are some absolute humans that they found. Yeah. You know, it was specimens sitting in the back. Yeah. I was reading too, and maybe you guys uh, saw this, but that point where he wins the, uh, or he's being announced at the the night or the the sword fighting or jousting, and they uh, they announce him, and it's all quiet, and none of the crowd says anything. Apparently, none of them spoke English. Yeah. So when he had finished his speech, they were all just like, "What's going on?" <laughs> like that was that wasn't planned. Like that just happened, and then the guy was like, "Yeah," and then they're all like, "Yeah." <laughs> Or whatever that was hilarious so note note on the extras yes they are like all of the extras in this movie are check extras and one of the things that i was reading cody to your point about the 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 specimens the, in the, the authenticity of the surfs they i saw something i don't know how accurate any of this is again people fact check me whatever but i saw something that some of these extras were legit homeless people in Prague. No way. Oh my God. <laughs> they were just like, hey, do you want to come be in this movie? They, Yeah, they staple the sign up to like a telephone pole <laughs> in the local town or something. And people are just like, yeah, sure. Like, we will up. give you a hot dog <laughs> if you show up and be also, please don't shower. <laughs> some guy walking down the street taking a bite out of a radish like an apple. And he's like, ooh. <laughs> get him, get him. Get him here. Get him here. <laughs> yeah, the guy, the guy's selling cat meat and hot wine. They actually just found him and he they just sent him. They, they were like, hey, can you just do that? But like walk across the camera lens and, for me know, real quick. And 80% of them weren't even sure it was a movie. They thought it was real. <laughs> they were attracted because they saw an advertisement for turkey legs and mead. And they thought the jousting was real. That's why it was so authentic. It wasn't. Oh, Janus, real. You got to come see this, Janus. <laughs> So, okay, so this movie, besides all of the lack thereof of critical acclaim, this movie was nominated for three 2002 MTV Movie Awards. Nice. So, Sounds about right. uh, Shannon Sossman was nominated for Breakthrough Female Performance. She lost to Mandy Moore in A Walk to Remember. Uh, and the film was also nominated for Best Kiss and Musical Sequence. Losing to American Pie 2 and Moulin Rouge, respectively. Brutal. Tough field. Tough field to be sure. American Pie 2. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's tough. MTV, the toughest critics. I want to get through, get to just kind of a walkthrough of this movie. We could just kind of riff on our favorite parts. But first, just some fun facts. So the lances in this movie, we were talking about this. I was talking about this with um, my roommate when we were watching this last night because a lot of the jousting looks really realistic. We're like, mm -hmm. how the fuck do you pull this off where two guys are riding at each other with horses and shattering lances on each other? And basically the way that they did this was they created these lances that were basically made to explode on impact where they just shatter. One of the funniest things, though, is that inside these hollow lances, they just crammed them full of like shards of different wood and also uncooked linguine pasta to like resemble wood shards when it blows up. I will say that like when the movie does try to do green screen, like in any church stuff, it looks very bad. 
but all the actual lists and the jousting looks phenomenal because like you said paul it's all so practical Mm -hmm. that like today you're like that's a guy getting absolutely obliterated off his horse (laughs) yeah yeah cody are are you talking just real quick cody you're talking about when he's speaking with what's her name jocelyn Jocelyn. in the church yeah we'll get there okay i yeah we'll get there because i have a theory about the church stuff but keep okay yeah Okay, last last couple of things, both having to do with either Jeffrey Chaucer or Paul Bettany. So as we've discussed on previous episodes, this movie is not taken from any of the stories in Canterbury Tales. However, there's a bunch of linking stuff to Canterbury Tales throughout this. So for example, the two guys that Chaucer gets in trouble with, like the pardoner and the summoner, are both characters in Canterbury Tales. Simon the Summoner and and I forget what the other guy's name was. Peter the Pardoner. Right. So both of those guys are in Canterbury Tales and are both described as Chaucer in that story as being lecherous, awful guys. So he kept to his word as is referenced in the movie, which is kind of cool. The other thing is that there's this weird kind of historical issue where historians can't account for about a year in Jeffrey Chaucer's life. Like they just don't know what he was doing in this one year. And so this movie is supposed to be like the fill in for this is what Chaucer was doing when historians had no idea where he was or what he was up to. And then lastly, I'll just mention this Paul Bettany as the Herald for William Thatcher actually developed laryngitis from just like yelling the entire movie. So there you go. Couple fun facts for uh, for the listeners there. Yeah. One more before we get into the plot. There's a lot of stuff with Jocelyn representing Chaucer's feminism. Specifically, there's one tale called Wife of the Bath where she says that the number one thing a woman wants is dominion over her husband. And so this is represented when she does the like, like you're actually going to lose because you love me and I'm going to control your outcomes, which doesn't happen in the middle ages. This is, I thought a pretty overt reference to Chaucer's kind of really untimely feminism in the um, Canterbury tales. All right. So without any more gilding of the lily and no more ado, let's get into the actual plot of this movie where we start with this just like hilarious pre opening credit scene where we get introduced immediately to our characters. That line that Roland says when he's talking to to Watt about Sir Ector being dead will just like live in the back of my head until I die. His like his spirit is covered in shite, but his stench remains. I'm just like, oh my God, this like the funniest intro to this movie. Yeah, and it's just this really core cast that they have of you know Roland Watt and then um William you can tell that all these guys actually get along great because they're, they're such believable like pals and we just start off with just like just these ultimate heights where it's like hey someone needs to get in this or we're not going to get fed and then they go through the first joust and William successfully like doesn't fuck up and is able to pull off the con and then once he's just like guys we can do this and this movie does a super good job of like introducing you to the world that it's in because like no you can't you can only joust if you're noble and then later on in the movie rufus sewell's um count adamar does a very credible explaining of the actual rules of jousting so you can kind of keep score in your head along the way but the movie just kind of launches you into their tale it's they're pretty believable as friends right away i also read that apparently on set they had a bunch of drinking parties 
Um, and some of the scenes then boozing, like apparently they were all just like wasted and then shot those scenes. And then there's also rumors that like they had parties together and like, I was reading like the Russian mafia showed up. I have no idea if this is true or not, but, um, so it makes sense that they're so like, you know, like you were saying, they're all just buds at the beginning. Tony, one of the notes that I, that I put down just in this opening scene and Cody alluded to this, but I think that it's a pretty, it sticks out to me because I've seen this movie so many times. Right. But it's kind of like this incognito way of doing like the two things that Cody was saying. One, establishing the stakes for what they're about to do. Basically saying, if you do this, you're going to die. And two, establishing like who the characters are and what their different like virtues and motivations are in like a super quick way. Do you find that like they were, I don't know, like I feel like in a lot of movies, they fuck up because it's too on the nose when they're trying to communicate that kind of thing. Do you feel that this opening scene is successful in doing that in like a way that kind of leads you into the movie or is too on the nose? No, I don't think it's too on the nose. And I think um, as uh, as you alluded to, it's like the hierarchy of like who they are within like their crew mm. is pretty clear immediately. And I think it's uh, always starting off any movie with a death of a character you have not and will never meet is usually pretty good because then, you know, they're not talking about themselves as much, but you kind of get their relationship by proxy of who that person meant to all of them. And so from there, I mean, it seemed pretty, pretty natural and easy to have them kind of settle into the plot going forward. Like there's no like, oh, maybe I should get on the horse or, well, no, because of blank that happened. It's all very easy for them and they kind of know what everyone's strengths are already and without, and you just know that by who says or doesn't say something in those moments. Totally agree. From there, we get right into like this credit scene that leads us right into like this first joust. And we talked about this for like the opening credits with we will rock you in the background which when you're watching this movie for the first time i imagine it's maybe a little bit of a shock but it just works so well in my opinion that like i wouldn't have it any other way and and apparently apparently the director brian uh was like they told me i couldn't do it so i wanted to that's basically what i read and then when I when I first I remember when I first watched this I was like what is going on are the people at this jousting event are they hearing we will rock you or is it just the background music and then slowly you realize that it's actually like playing there like the with the horns going down and people doing the stomping I'm like no 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 they are playing a song by Queen at this jousting event yeah and a couple couple other things there the so the the director's note on choosing this type of music, he defends it one by saying like, hey, if we're going to have like big orchestral pieces that didn't exist yet in history. So if we're picking two t- different types of music that didn't exist in the time, I'm going to pick the one that's more fun. And then yeah, two, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to set my training montage to lowrider. <laughs> yeah. And then secondly, he's like, I wanted to basically show what the music of the time would have meant for the people that were there. And that is better illustrated by using like a rock song where people are getting like pumped up about it rather than some fucking loot to us right now. <laughs> it's like, this yeah, loot. yeah, guy on the pan flute. 
I wonder what sound system they had there and if they were just blasting that song. So everyone in the crowd was just like going crazy or something. Kind of like a camp trying to catch everything good. (laughs) Yeah. Of all the people, I mean, there's so many different types of fans represented there. I love, I would love to imagine that if I was there, I would be one of the like, burly ass shirt off drunk dudes like (laughs) fucking bouncing around in the stands do you guys like see yourselves in this environment and like who you'd be at a joust oh yeah dude like if if my lord let me off for the day and i got to go like (laughs) into the joust and i got like a little like some walking around money to get like the world's hottest beer (laughs) and like a turkey leg like you know that's that's going straight to the brain Mm mm-hmm I think about it without thinking about how likely it is that you accidentally like stumble past a horse when you're drunk and it kicks you in the head and nobody helps you. Like you're just getting stepped into the mud and it's like, Oh, just another guy who walked behind a horse today. What an idiot. <laughs> yeah. Okay. I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because there's Paul and I have so much fun on this podcast talking about like time period related, terrible medical practices. And we will get there in this movie. But I want to use this opportunity to move along a little bit with yeah, they're like, because yeah. part of the reason that they're also like, well, you can't do it because of legal reasons because you're not a knight. But also, you've only ever been like the target when our knight was practicing. Like, it's extremely dangerous for you to just pick up this sport. And like, and it, they also just live in a very dangerous time. Like when they meet Chaucer, Paul, it's okay. We're just going to move it. Oh, yeah. Chaucer yeah, thing. let's move it. Yeah. They meet Chaucer and they're like, you good, dude? Like you were clearly robbed and he's like, well, no, but yes. Yeah. (laughs) Like that's just like the world that they live in. Like where if you like, you know, imagine you're like, yeah, the over didn't hit on chargers chiefs. So now a guy is just going to like strip me naked. (laughs) I'm like the involuntary vow and I got to walk home. Yeah. The involuntary vow of poverty is really funny. that, That scenario is not dead. (laughs) (laughs) but i also think it's interesting because to paul to your earlier point about the movie establishing almost like in a indirect way that william is a man of the people like if he was really wealthy they would not have even asked him when he walked by too and i think one of the funniest scenes i I know we were went ahead of but just real quick when they're talking in front of the hanging man yeah that scene is so funny to me but i also think it, it speaks to like these guys are grimy like this is how they win the uh, the people uh, as William is jousting is that he is a, he's one of them. But anyways. Yeah, no, I, and, and similarly like skipping back to where we were with the, with the Chaucer intro, just like we got really quick intros for Will, Watt, Roland, we get this super quick, very effective intro on Chaucer that establishes one, we don't know what this guy's up to, but secondly, just with the use of the word trudge and the way he actually like speaks very eloquently, we know immediately that this guy is more at least like educated than the rest of them. And that carries through in his dialogue and the way he speaks throughout the rest of the movie. Yeah. It's, it's, he wrote such a popular work of fiction and I use popular both in like the lot of people like it, but also it was such a widely distributed piece that basically anyone who learned how to read in the 1300s was able to read what like was reading his book. It right. was so widely understood. And that character is pretty represented in this movie because he might very well be the only person in that group. That's actually a nobleman that is an right. actual Lord, but just because he's, you know, 
a gambling addict and just kind of along for the ride, he's willing to play in on the roost that William is actually higher than him. And he like eats shit for him sometimes in front of other people because he's just one of the people and he's able to adopt that sensibility. Yeah. So I want to talk about a couple other things before we move on. Um, first of all, the close up of his ass the entire time is fucking hilarious. Like the, the way that they just position the camera. So it is right on his cheek it's like is so great the fact that we're saying things throughout this movie like i don't give a witch's teat referring to chaucer as master nude and then later it's almost like will like this is why they needed chaucer in their group because there's two things that it seems like they hadn't thought of whatsoever one what william's actual alias was going to be he 100% came up with that right then and there. Yes. Sir yes. Ulrich von Lichtenstein from Gelderland. One, those places are not the same thing. Like, no, they are not in the same area. And and then the like aliases he gives to Roland and Watt are just comical. But then like the fact that they hadn't thought that they'd need any patents of nobility is just a great way to just establish the actual need for Chaucer mm-hmm. in this story without just like throwing another guy in the group. Yeah, he's like, I can read. Can you guys read? They're like, <laughs> I don't think we can read. I think we need this guy. <laughs> yeah. It felt a lot like it was either Ehrlich von Lichtenstein or Muhammad. <laughs> it's <laughs> totally the McLovin of night names. <laughs> How many people do you know named Ehrlich von Lichtenstein? <laughs> <laughs> None, because it's a made-up fucking name, William. <laughs> I, just, I love that he just picks the smallest like province in Europe to be. Yeah, from. just yeah, and like, and even when like, so like when they go to the first joust and they've incorporated um, Chaucer into their group, like he does a really good job of being like all the places he names and all the words he uses are lower level lords so it's not like it's princes or counts it's like dukes and earls and all their lands are described as duchies which are like much smaller fiefs than anything else so like basically he's like yep this guy's a lord but as like uh count adamar will kind of like chide him on later he's like a like a country knight Right, right. Like he's probably just some guy who like owns some land, doesn't he's just a guy who's here, doesn't fit in with the rest of the really higher up lords. But that's actually perfect for their cover because like no one's gonna double check if some like random thief in the Netherlands, which is where Gelderland is, like they're not gonna check that. Yeah. In a in a French or German tournament. Matthew, let's uh let's get ahead to hear your theory about the churches because we are right after after we register for the tournament and we get some like more hints as to why Josser doesn't have any clothes, you know, as he's like glancing at the dice and stuff. We get introduced to Jocelyn where Will follows her into a church. So so let's hear your your theory on the church settings. Okay. So it's not specifically on the church settings. And this isn't, I didn't look this up at all. Like, this is just totally me thinking this. But I feel like um, Brian Hegland, the director, is trying to take shots at religion in general. Because why did they need a green screen for a church? There are certainly churches 
that they can use to look at a and then b they always they rag on the bible i mean the main bad guy count Ottomar, he quotes the bible his main quote you've been count measured that's a quote from the bible mm-hmm. and then when william is speaking to jocelyn at that party and he's like trying to woo her he quotes he's like you were like whatever he, he also quotes the bible and she's like what are you even saying and then there's that one scene where i feel like they're trying to also make fun of uh religion when he's um that one guy it's like a weird cutaway the uh cockle ones like referencing yeah. when uh yeah. yeah yeah so so i was like what is going on it feels like the director is like trying to like make fun of religion almost and then of course the priest in that scene is just ridiculous, completely, you know, not self-aware of what's going on. Yeah. I think you're right because like, you know, the summoner and the pardoner are both agents of the church and they're just Mm. clearly just poaching on like people. And that's why they they have Chaucer because they know he's a gambling addict. And they, even when they like, when William wins or gets like the first place in the, in the sword and he's able to pay off those guys for Chaucer, they're like, yeah, come on back. Like they know they set a trap. And so I think you're right, Matthew. Um, But, and yeah, I also don't think that they would have been able to be like, yeah, they go to some Catholic church in Prague where they want to film. And then they're probably like, yeah. And then Mm. we just like uh, bring the horse in to the front. (laughs) That's true. Should we do that? (laughs) That's true. No, dude. (laughs) Yeah. There's what I was, uh, the only thing I was going to say is there seemed to be something intentional with how they represented the church in that time. um, And they didn't represent it. Well, that's all, all I'll say. Do you think he was foreshadowing uh, Martin Luther nailing his 95 season mm. the rise of Lutheranism in Central Europe? <laughs> that that would have been a deep cut. That would have been, that if, if, he's a, if he's a devout Lutheran, who knows? He could have been setting up a sequel where <laughs> Martin Luther's walking up the church steps to don't, uh, what's that Queen song? Uh, having a good time. Yeah. So, <laughs> don't stop me now. Walk oh my God. Nice don't stop me too. now. Don't stop me. The two things that I wanted to say, and they're referencing things that you guys have all have already said, but this Jocelyn intro, I think is really like tipping its cap almost to some of the things that Chaucer is writing in his stories where we immediately get Jocelyn as a character. Again, one of these quick intros where we learn who she is like right off the bat as a very like strong, independent woman which I think, you know, you might not expect given the time period, but she is, you know, battling, you know, verbal sparring with Will and just like absolutely housing him (laughs) in their little back and forth. But the second thing that I put down is this priest absolutely belongs in Canterbury Tales because he says this one thing, he goes, pray your beauty fades quickly. And that is a, that just reminded me so much of, of a lot of the stories we read in Canterbury Tales where a woman's virtue is almost always associated with her chastity. And like, this just feels like right in lockstep with that. It's really true. And it's clear in, um, especially when we will have to talk about Rufus Sewell's Count Adamar now because he gets introduced um, as, as like a little bit of like Captain Exposition, but it, but I think they do it pretty okay. Um, when he's talking with her, he's pretty much just like, he's just the knight in search of a wife trope of Canterbury Tales. Yeah. And she's like actively pushing up against that. But Count Adamar shows up and he's just right away, just an absolute tool. And when William comes up and like drops that like sick bar, 
of like maybe angels have no name he's like i need to get this guy hard. out of here yeah dude so hard first the transition from the priest singing in the church when william and jocelyn were talking to the jousting i don't know if you guys are i'm going reminded me of uh, the Lord of the Rings scene where the singing transitions, I think in the return of the King where Faramir is riding and um, is about to die in uh, his, his, his dad is like eating the tomato scene. That's what it reminded me of, which made no sense. But then the, <laughs> the other quick thing I was going to say is when the, I don't know if you guys would feel so uncomfortable if someone introduced you to a woman, like he was just introduced to like the, his little squire goes up and he's like, Count Adamar, uh, like commander of XYZ, winner of all these tournaments. Like, what would you follow up with? You know, like go up and just be like, hey, you know I mean? <laughs> it's just like so funny to me. Like, yeah, this guy, he's done all this stuff. Here he is. I'd just be like, what's up? Like, nice to meet you. I don't know. It's just so funny to me. That's how I'd always introduce my boys in college. <laughs> this is, this is, this is Tony, winner of the 2015 football intramural championship <laughs> all conference all, yeah all conference uh you just list off uh, his starting <laughs> yeah i i would follow i would follow up an intro like that with um so can i get your dad's number let's uh let's get this courtship <laughs> let's rolling. bypass yeah. this uh, Tony. number up front <laughs> yeah, yeah actually yeah i can't believe we made it this far into the podcast without really talking about how good Heath Ledger is in this. Like he's just an absolute comet. I think the only person that's like capable of keeping up with his charisma is like Paul Bettany as Chaucer. What would you want to just riff a little bit about just what a bummer it is that we missed out on multiple decades of Heath Ledger glory. Yeah, it's uh it's pretty tough for those who do not know uh, Heath Ledger passed away in 2008, <laughs> but uh yeah <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah i mean it's it's really interesting to see and he's just like such a versatile actor and like has such natural charisma but can do a lot it's really unfortunate that they went away from his peasant look that was a great look with the, <laughs> the dreads and the beard. yeah it's looked really good not intentional dreads so it's not as bad right right really yeah he's not appropriating anything it's just because yeah, he's he was, filthy he's poor yeah <laughs> yeah he was at that point uh still heavy in the running for you know he smelled crazy player of the week <laughs> but you know they got him the one bath that they all could afford and then it looks great but yeah he's um it would be really interesting to see some of the roles he might have gotten after that because it seems like you know anything Leonardo DiCaprio did could have probably gotten in Heath Ledger mm. mixed it up. Mm. I mean, yeah, they're similarly aged. I mean, when when Heath Ledger filmed this movie, he was twenty one, which is insane to think about. Whoa, wow, that's wild. That's crazy. He was the youngest member of that cast, like by far. Yeah, you know, to that point, Cody, 21-year-old Heath Ledger, I'm looking at him in one of the, like, the hanging man scene when they're all, like, fighting over what what they want to do. And mm -hmm. I'm like, I don't, based on what I can see of Heath Ledger's build right now, I'm not sure he can actually lift a lance. He is scrawny in this movie, okay. dude. I'm glad, I'm glad you brought that up because it just needs to be said. Jousting would suck. <laughs> Yeah, it's a glorious sport that looks cool to watch. But this is like, like they're they're talking about. Like, okay, so continuing this point with the plot of the movie. Yeah, Chaucer's first introduction is just all time. He's just riffing. He's totally in the zone. And then they start going, and 
when you get hit and like, even if you don't get like blown off your horse, you're still like your back is at like a 90 degree <laughs> angle. Yeah. And God help you if it even like hits your head, like count Adamar yeah. hits William directly in the skull and shatters a lance off it and sends his helmet flying so bad he has a flashback to when he was a child <laughs> like you know there was no nfl blue concussion tent for when you got two points scored on you they're not like oh can we just like have him count to 10 for us one time it's like no turn around get a new lance and then charge back at that guy meanwhile yeah. there's seven count adamars swirling the around you yeah the CTE like of the these middle. Guys. <laughs> and not it's only that on your temple trying to suck out the headache <laughs> yeah not only, suction cup yeah. not only that but like there's a note in here because okay keeping to the plot here so during this first joust william he's f- jousting against this guy who we know at this point is Thomas Colville and Mm. Colville is like injured. Right. And so asks for William and him to kind of just like finish, but not destroy each other. At which point Adamar is saying, why didn't Ulrich finish him off? And so Cody, to your point about joust jousting sucking and there not being a blue tent, There's a possibility that you're like straight up unconscious on your horse riding along the list at a trot and there's just some fucking monstrosity on a horse coming to take your fucking dome off. Like, this is not over. We've got another round to go and there's no rules about you going off to the sideline for a breather. Yeah, the only thing is that if your squire can sprint to the center of the list fast enough with the white flag, otherwise that guy's coming. He's coming with the lance and it's aimed at your fucking collarbone. Yeah, and there seems to be like super loose rules about when to start. Like the flag. Oh, goes some guys down. are taking like full on. <laughs> like sometimes it's just I, like this head start ahead of the flag, and the guy's like around the corner with his lance up already. Oh, yeah, there's no bar for false starts. <laughs> <laughs> well, I almost wonder, like, how do you dodge this lance? Like, can you like jump up on the horse and like double hand it in this guy? Like, I don't know. I wonder what they would do if you like try to throw your lance like a 300 Leonidas spear at someone. I just don't understand the rules. Right. But this scene and the one a couple beforehand is important for establishing another aspect of William's character, which is mercy, which I found really mm-hmm. interesting because Jocelyn calls this out. Adamar sees it as a weakness. So we get three things all at once. We know that William is merciful. We know that Jocelyn really appreciates that and sees that in William and that Adamar sees that as a weakness, establishing further on that Adamar is even worse of a guy. I also loved the scene where Will uses his newfound stature to basically save Jeff from the summoner and the partner and just be like, release him, take him back to me. And so he's got like this merciful side to him, which is super important going forward. Right. Before we go on to the next little bit, a quick thing. Uh, Chaucer refers refers to Charlemagne a ton when addressing William. Um, and his nobility. Um, that's because for the majority of the plot, they're in France doing French tournaments. They don't return to England, as the plot says, until the very end. And he references Charlemagne a lot because in uh, feudal France, uh, when Charlemagne conquered France, he awarded all the soldiers that were under him with knighthood and lordship. And then those continued forever as sword nobles. 
And then later on, you could buy your nobility or earn it in other ways. And those were called robe nobles. But tracing your lineage to Charlemagne has always been more respected and smiled upon more than just kind of like, oh, this guy actually was just like a really good ship merchant and went to King Louis the fourth and decided that he wanted to buy a lordship. Mm. He doesn't have any land or whatever. He's just a lord. So having sword nobility is kind of why um, Chaucer refers to Charlemagne a bunch. Interesting. But but we we're we're going along and William is just, you know, tearing it up. He loses to Adamar. That's the last time we see him do poorly in a joust until we get to the tournament in Paris. And so we're by bypa- I'm bypassing the um the dance unless you guys want to talk about the feast I where he has to do that. Just want to say I this is another example of the music in this movie being fucking awesome. And mm. like the fact that at one point in the dance when Will and Jocelyn are dancing together. You see William like singing the words of Dave Bowie's, uh, what is it? Golden. It's a Dave Bowie song, but he's like singing the words to it. And it's just great. Like the whole thing is awesome. Yeah. But on the way there, uh, William's armor gets fixed by um, a Ferris, a female blacksmith. And um, she helps them learn how to dance. And so they pick her along with us. And she's also great. Another example of Chaucer's feminism. Like she talks equally to the guys, suns them all the time. She's a great character. But we get to this new tournament and in Paris and it's big time. Jocelyn is going to be there. Um, And so we're getting really excited. And our gang, even though Chaucer's, you know, he's a reformed gambling addict, but he proposes to the group. Guys, we got a sure thing. (laughs) <laughs> I got I got a, I got a great line for us. It's William versus the French field. And they're like, well, how much are they asking for? And they're like 50 gold florins. Like, well, if that's the case, we're going to like those are those odds are unbelievable. And Roland's like, oh, I don't know, guys. And the, the French guys are such dicks. <laughs> they're just talking so much shit. And not until uh, they reference that the Pope is French. Does that just trigger something in Roland and he has to do it? But yeah, they with get, the comeback that Jesus is English. <laughs> that's an all-timer. <laughs> all-timer. Uh, um, but then we get to the plot that Jocelyn doesn't want him to win. Jocelyn wants William to lose the matches. Mm-hmm. If it will prove her love or prove his love to her. Now, this is where I get a little bit confused because he is getting his ass kicked for like a lot of lances. And we know there's only three per round. So is this tournament like round robin versus mm. single elimination? Because he takes like seven. I'm thinking about this. Yes. Ma- Matthew, you can jump in here or or Tony too, I suppose. Uh, I'm thinking about this almost as like a premier league point system mm. where it is isn't necessarily round robin but it's more of like a pool to start out with and mm-hmm. you get points for wins and how you won um and that's why at at a certain point after a certain amount of losses it's still like open if everybody's losing across the board in this pool that william can still step up step up ahead of the the field yeah, I um, I kind of took it as more of like a, a Steven Seagal action movie flair where like he kicks someone in the chest and then it's 45 different angles of them hitting the window. And, like, goes ah, okay, so you're just doing window. like more. Yeah, yeah because I, I'm going to be honest. I don't think the people of uh, 1350s France were coming up with very intricate point scoring <laughs> in tournament fields for the men hitting yeah, each other. And, and doing the percentages like on like, in real time after each match yeah they're not talking about how uh 
Ulrich is dominating in the net points, but yeah, <laughs> math was a sin for the majority of this time. Matthew, your wonderful, wonderful girlfriend comes to you and says, um, Hey, you know, things have been good for a while now, but I'm ready to take it to the next level. Here's what I need you to do. Lose every single one of your soccer games from now on. Otherwise we're done. What do you say? It's so funny because like, I feel like in our day and age, this would be a red flag because it's kind of like an ultimatum, you know, it's like, Hey, either you love me or you don't, you know what I mean? And like, so the for me, whenever I, yeah, whenever I watched this scene, I, I remember being so annoyed uh, at Jocelyn when I was a kid and I still am, but I, obviously the point of this scene is like, it's supposed to show that, you know, William is common man and this is how he views women versus like count Ottomar, you know, count AP, Ottomar Patek, Philippe, whatever the hell those watches are called. Mm. Um, I don't know if you guys got on that too, but um, so yeah, I don't. Well, I, well, like, well really. I think you're right because if, if, if she went to count Adamar as like, if you love me, you'll lose every match. He's like, I'm actually buying you from your dad. So no. <laughs> yeah, you like, we mean by love. I don't understand. I don't love you. I'm just, yeah, I'm just gaining from you. So I, obviously I mean, we all know that was the point of the, the, the whole scene, but it is definitely like kind of weird. I remember it, it painted Jocelyn in a weird uh, light in my opinion, but. Well, Adamar has that dog in him, so you know he's not going to lose any match if someone asks him to. So my well, my my view of this actually has something to do with a part that we kind of we skipped over a little bit, where Jocelyn and Ulrich get into a fight after you know Adamar isn't at one of the tournaments. Mm-hmm. Ul- Ulrich is super pissed because all he wants all he wants is to beat Adamar. So we have these competing interests in the story going on where it's like there's the love story with Jocelyn and the whole like competition between Ulrich and Adamar. And in this fight with Jocelyn, it's very clear that William puts his priorities on the competition with Adamar first. And so it makes some sense to me that the punishment that Jocelyn kind of concocts in her head or the test at least has everything to do with, are you willing to lose this more than you want to be with me. And so it's extreme. Yeah. That's granted, but it doesn't seem like it's just random. It, yeah, it's definitely a sourcing, but here's, here's where I do say like the way she's asking is bad. Cause it, she didn't say withdraw from the tournament. She said, lose the matches. Like you need to put yourself and just be a target. <laughs> and like, you need to lose it's not that it's like you'll withdraw from the tournament, mm-hmm. Like you'll just actually lose, lose. Like you won't even be a part of it. She's like, no, you need to just sit there and just eat shit for me. So bad that I have to put you in what is an, a bad doctor all time shoulder contraption to relocate your, your dislocated shoulder. Well, it's a crank the, on his wrist and oh, they have God. it in like a box. <laughs> and it's like a two guy job to hold you in it. It's so great. It cracks me up every time. I don't know if we're thinking about this the right way, to be quite honest with you. How should we be thinking about about it? Well, think about if you were, again, if you were a peasant roaming around the countrysides with two older, extremely ugly guys, (laughs) and you never see a woman, and then a very rich, beautiful woman is talking to you for probably the first time in his entire life, you wouldn't. You wouldn't entertain the possibility of just eating a couple lances to the chest. Yeah, I mean, this is 
this is another like almost nod to the Canterbury Tales where every single dude in these stories sees a woman falls head over heels with the Looney Tunes wolf guy (laughs) energy energy. Yeah. And then is willing to kill his best friend for this person. So you're right. So I I like that, Tony. Yeah. He Williams is simp. He's yeah. just the first example of simping for Jocelyn. And I mean, who among us, you know, you, like that take a couple of lances. Yeah, you could roam around for like 16 years, which would be the equivalent of the rest of your life. And never so see a woman, maybe. <laughs> so before we move on, we have to note that in one of these tournaments, um, we meet Sir Thomas Colville again. And Adamar withdraws um from facing Sir Thomas Colville. And we learn it's because it's actually Prince Edward II, the Prince of Wales, just a total badass on the battlefield and the future King of England. So even though these competitions are existing in France, no one wants to knowingly endanger a member of the royal family until William sees the disappointment in his face when he when Chaucer withdraws for him and they each go and they get one good lance and they each just totally nail each other mm-hmm. and they come back into the middle. And when Thomas reveals himself to be the prince, he says, like, you knew me and you didn't you didn't yield. And William repeats a line that he said to him when they first met, which is it's not in me to withdraw. Mm-hmm. And so um, like that is a, immediately Edward and William are just boys like he just he, the guy just wants to do sports so bad. <laughs> and like honestly, I don't know how they didn't detect that he, that he was royalty earlier because his armor is just so much better than everyone else's like it's got gold trim he's got a little cage in his helmet like it's so expensive he's got the nike sponsorship he's got the oregon duck uniform sponsorship oh yeah for sure like this is like this is like his like city edition jersey for the for the tournament at la La rochelle like I, yeah. I love in most like a lot of these city jerseys they have like the skyline silhouetted it, it's just like mostly hovels and then one big castle building <laughs> Enormous. it's yeah it's it's yeah it's um what's the abbey called in london oh shoot i should know westminster this. abbey yeah, yeah it's go, just yeah. a bunch of like two-story like huts and hovels and then just an enormous castle <laughs> Okay, so let's let's move this on. So so we're going through tournaments. We have this like, you know, love scene between Will and Jocelyn after Will loses where, you know, he somehow manages to like get the energy put together with like having broken ribs and stuff to you know, have sex with Jocelyn apparently in this tent. Um there's the this interesting line from cuz Chaucer sees Joss go into the tent. And so he says in very eloquent, beautiful speech, like Guinevere goes to Lancelot. And I just, I like all of these little nods again towards the time period where as Cody and I know, reading the Canterbury tales, it's filled with references to either Arthurian mythology, Greek mythology. There's, there's uh, mention in this movie of Venus uh, Aphrodite, the Greek mythology. So all of that's kind of just infused into this story, which I really appreciated. But we move on along to this boat ride back to England and this procession once we get there. There's this flashback 
which I really appreciate because it again solidifies this kind of common through line throughout the movie, which is any man can change his stars. We get this flashback with Will as a young boy <laughs> just sitting on top of a stockade that some guy is like locked in. And this guy isn't ashamed enough to just like spew some insults at like a nine-year-old. <laughs> He's like locked up. And this kid's like, dad, will I be a knight? And this guy's like, fat chance, you fucking idiot. Dude, if I was that guy's dad, I would have just punched that guy in the head. Like, he's in the stockade. What are you going to do? Right. But then we get into London. Boys are back in town. Plays. It's legendary. And we get William going to find his father. And there's this really, really emotional scene of Will and his dad reconnecting. Matthew, Tony... How does this scene hit you guys with the limited amount that we've actually seen Will's dad throughout this story? It certainly helps they made him blind. It was just his regular father. It, like, but like the weight of it that, you know, he's still not seeing him again kind of sets in. Yeah. And so there's yeah. that kind of separation from the meeting that like he literally can't see what his son's become, but he's still proud of him. So I think yeah. that would be really helpful. Yeah, no, that it's interesting too because I almost get the vibe that William feels guilty about not being home for 12 years, but they don't really play on that at all. Like the relationship between him and his father is so like he's like, Hey, I sent you off. I wanted you to do great things. That's what you did. There was no resentment for like, hey, I've been mm-hmm. blind by myself. So I, cause I always was expecting that to happen. Some sort of like, you never came back, you never helped. Like my, the roof of my house is like, you know, it's flooding or whatever. So I thought it was a really emotional scene. Um, and yeah, I liked it a lot. Matthew, I think the the closer comparison to um, that scene in Return of the King is how William and his dad just annihilate a rotisserie chicken for dinner. <laughs> <laughs> okay, can I say one quick thing too? Did anyone else feel like Count Adamar was like very... Looking like a Nazgul, bro. That first scene where they zoom in on the horse's eye, I'm like, what is going on? Yeah, it doesn't help that he's all blacked out. Yeah, yeah. Appreciate Adamar's fits. That dude was just dressing. Let's just appreciate Adamar as a character really quick before we so hateable. Well, let's let's use this let's use this next plot point to actually to move this along and then talk about Adamar a little bit more. So Adamar follows Will, sees that he goes to Cheapside figures out all of the the bullshit about him and his dad. And so Will is then arrested the next day. And I really like this scene because all of his team, including Jocelyn, are all encouraging Will to run from being arrested and, you know, whatever punishment lies ahead for him. But he refuses to run. So again, we get two different things, the love of his team and wanting to spare him from any pain, but also William being like this brave, really proud guy. So just more character kind of cementing there. When Will is put in jail, uh, gotta hop off. The dog is uh, loose in the building. Not, <laughs> um, do you not want sure. Do you want us to just pause and then wait for? Yeah, you we to can come pause. Back? We can um, pause real quick. Uh, no, you guys keep going. I might not be able to get back on. He's a little wily. Okay. Okay. All right. Well, thanks, Tony. Oh, great, great being on. Hope to be on again soon at a more <laughs> secure time. <laughs> All right. Thanks, Tony. All right. Go, go get your dog. 
So while Tony de- deals with his dog issue, um, we get this great scene between Will and Adamar in jail where, again, Adamar is like talking about his like weighed, measured, found wanting thing. And I just like, let's take this moment to just appreciate how good of a bad guy Adamar is. And I just want to start with this man. His face was meant to be a bad guy in a movie. Mm. Oh, yeah. Like, it's kind of unfortunate, but he just has the perfect bad guy face. He's got really, like, pale green eyes, which make him look, like, almost, like, ghostly. He's Mm. just, he's handsome enough to be believable as, like, just, like, a masculine counter to anyone he's up against. And he's so smug. Like, Mm -hmm. he is the most Mm. smug ass. It's not like he's just, like, purely evil. That's not what his thing is. He's a bad person, but he's not, like, this like kind of like super dog. He's like really good at jousting. He's really conniving and he is just a smug dick. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, this scene reminded me of gladiator actually. Um, yeah. The, the prison scene gladiator. I was also going to say, why is it that like bad guys are always so like socially inept? I mean, if you think about the just how he wasn't reading, maybe he just doesn't care, I guess. But like Jocelyn clearly does care about how you treat other people. Like she was very receptive to how William was down to earth and like um, respecting people, courageous, mercy. And Count Adamar just doesn't care. You know, he just like shows that, you know, he I'm just, a, I mean, yeah, it's like my money speaks for itself. I'm going to do what I want. Um, type vibe. I, I think so. So here's, so when I watch this movie, um, today in preparation for this pod, I actually noticed this for the very first time. I've seen this movie dozens of times, but this is the first time I noticed this. There's a relationship between Prince Edward, Thomas Colville, and Adamar that's only explained in exposition. So we never see them interact on screen. But after Adamar withdraws when he learns who Edward is, after that tournament, the reason that William doesn't face Adamar is because Edward has called Adamar's companies to the front in the Hundred Years' War. Yep. And is like his mercenary force has been basically purchased by Edward. And he's like, fuck this guy. But mm. then the only reason he is able to compete in London is because war Adamar's crimes. company were committing war crimes, which yeah. do you know how vile you have to be to be like chalked for war crimes in the Middle Ages? Now, the reason it was is because they were ransacking churches. That's why, specifically mm. why. The fact that they were pillaging Got villages, <laughs> not really. Not a big deal, but <laughs> ransacking Catholic churches. I'm sure the Pope got a letter about that. Yeah, and yeah. so then he's like, hey, these free companies, get them out of France. So there's this relationship between Edward and Adamar that is pretty like clearly like, I can't get rid of you, but I kind of, but I hate you. Like, I think you're a dick. Mm. I don't like you. And on the flip side, when he's like, you know, Williams in the stockades, looks like all's lost. This is the guy who, Prince Edward sees as worthy of knighthood far more than Adamar, who mm. just never appreciated what it meant to be a knight. But everything that William has shown Prince Edward is that this guy is actually more deserving of it than anyone else. Well, and to me, the whole point of the movie, like the whole theme of like what it means to be a knight and like a true being noble what that means is summed up in edward's quote to william which is basically your men love you if i knew nothing else about you that would be enough and Mm, 
again, if you're, you know, contrasting that with Adamar, the only person that we really see around Adamar most of the time is his Herald. And this dude is clearly like afraid of Adamar, like does not love him. He is there for the money, probably just his duty. But William commands a certain loyalty just because of his character. I, I don't know, Matthew, did you, does that line hit you like it hits me? Yeah, I love that line. I think, I think it's a good judge of character as someone's friends, you mm-hmm. know, when you meet someone and like, who are their friends, who are their best friends? Um, yeah, absolutely. I love that line. I think it's also compounded by his very next line is, and you also tilt when you should withdraw. Yep. And that's nightly too. He's like, he's like, you and mm-hmm. I are actually closer than the other nights. Cause every other night, like when they found out who I was, they wouldn't do the, they wouldn't be sportsman. Like they wouldn't face me. He's like, but you were the only one. So he's like, you're actually closer to me than any of the nights that you faced before. Yeah. So I think it's, I think it's a really cool speech. And then he's just like, William's a fucking night. Now mm-hmm. I pulled up some books that none of you can read. <laughs> and I say, that's what it is. So Wait, William's Cody, I new. love that. I love that part. I wrote this down. It was like my he said, my personal historians <laughs> have learned that made me laugh so hard. He's like, I'm I'm cooking the books on this one, folks. No, that sounds like me in seventh grade writing a paper and like in the bibliography, just being like Ibid, do like a Wikipedia article or something. I don't know. Yeah. Um quote. The the citation on this is just my people say <laughs> the streets. It's just it's just the Trump quote. Yeah, it's like more and more people are saying it. You're hearing it more and more. <laughs> but he just I have had like, my ear to the ground. But just in case you thought it was sus, and he's like, "Such is my word," and is then beyond contestation. Everyone's like, "No, dude, like you're good. Like whatever you say." <laughs> Some peasant actually <laughs> like no. yeah, immediately like like swung on by one of his dudes with swords that's there just <laughs> yeah. decapitated on the spot <laughs> all right so, but also he's wearing the i just want to say before we move on yeah. he's wearing the sickest coat oh it's so it's just sick, like dude it's just like below the knee length brown duster with like fur and it has like his coat of arms but it's split on yeah. the breast so it's like red blue blue red with like the embroidery and like he's a louis v like, fall collection oh yeah apparently apparently he was voted most attractive in the cast like they did an internal vote and they voted him the most attractive uh person well that actor was also in a tv show with kevin bacon called the following where he plays a serial killer who's follower who like people online become obsessed with him because he's attractive and a killer and they break him out of prison and there's a cult around him so he's like he's got that like energy of like i can just kind of like command people which does <laughs> got it got it could go in um, two different directions <laughs> so we're moving on and l- let me just say that so the final like match is Adamar versus William. And from what we know about how much the prince loves William and has this like really at best ambivalent relationship with Adamar, but probably doesn't like him. If he finds out that Adamar tipped his lance against William, he's getting hanged tonight. <laughs> yeah. I just want to say it. I have no idea why he didn't just have Chaucer go up to the prince and be like, my lord, my liege is wounded. He's been, t- his lance has been tipped. Edward stops the match. Adamar is immediately seized. 
and they have a kangaroo court and kill him that night. <laughs> but because William is such a good guy and he's so hellbent on his like personal vendetta against him, he's like, no, <laughs> lash it to me arm. Well, it's also, he- it's also William just again, I am going to beat you against mm-hmm. all odds. Mm-hmm. I am yeah. not yeah. only am I lowborn who faked all of this shit and needed the intervention of royalty to get me here, but you tipped a lance. I'm going up against you. Like, like I'm a huge underdog in this because of your equipment and I'm going to beat you anyway. Cause that's who I am. And, the, and, and they've shown how dangerous this sport is. So him being like, I'm not wearing a helmet or armor and I'm like lashing it to my lashing the lance to my arm. You're just like, you are out of your mind. Right. And everyone tells him that you're going to die right now. I mean, if William's any other guy, this movie could have ended with just a body with like a lance through his head. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, he becomes a human kebab. (laughs) (laughs) Especially like it seems he would win, but he would still get hit, you know? So like the risk of like, no, 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 I'm not going to let him hit me at all. Yeah. It's just like crazy. Right, right. But I love that this movie ends with Adamar on his back. William, like that speech, you know, Watt in this movie is a lot of mostly comic relief. And I love Mm -hmm. him for all of those reasons, like his whole thonging bit. Like, it's great. But it's interesting that at the end of the movie, it's Watt that looks at William when after Chaucer gives his last speech announcing Sir William Thatcher and Watt looks up at him and he says, William, that's your name. Your father heard that. And I'm just like, Ooh, Mm, that hit. You can't, you can't lose with that coursing through your veins. Yeah. 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 Alan Tudyk's the man. He was really good in this role. He was, and like you said, Paul, like when, when they're kind of like, Hey, the jig is up and they're going to bring you to the stockades. You should run. William is looking for people to like not run away with him and face the music. And he's like, what you and me, we don't run. Mm. And what like kind of like smiles and then like starts crying. And he goes today. We today we run. Yeah. Yeah. So, so William wins, knocks Adam R on his ass. And then we get that great shot of like looking upward with all of the, of William's like gang around him. Adamar doing the Wade measured found wanting bit. And then we kind of end the movie with this embrace between William and Jocelyn and take us home with ACDC shook me all night and roll credits. And it's just like the Mm. perfect ending. You don't need anything else from there. Just take us home. ACDC constellations in the background. And it's Mm -hmm. just, it's amazing. One question that I have for both of you guys, I know my answer to this already. Would you ever consider this movie a romantic comedy? Um, Yeah, I would probably put it more in action comedy first. Yeah. I, but I, mean, there, me, I think there's an, oh, I, I, I just don't think that the romance is as central as like, yeah. it's, it may, it may be, it may take up like 40% of the movie. It might be like a plurality of the movie, but like 30% is the Adam R and then 20%, 20, another excuse me, 30% is like the, the, like changing your stars, father stuff. So mm, yeah. I think, I think it's definitely like a lot of the movie, but I don't think it's enough of the movie to make it like a full rom-com, but, but, yeah. it, but I feel like I could maybe be persuaded. Matthew, what do you think? Yeah. Well, I was just gonna say, I agree, Cody. There's so many cool themes. It's almost like what you want to focus on. Like there's class struggle, like 
mm-hmm. um, you know, the theme of mercy of character, uh, doing what you believe in. I, I will say like the, how you, you know, when your girlfriend comes to your game and you play a lot harder, I thought that was hilarious, you know? So like, that's very rom com like, Oh, my girl's at the game. I'm going to go really, really yeah, hard. I'm in the gym rec league and I drop 20. <laughs> yeah. If, if you play in any men's league and you know, someone's girlfriend at the game, cause like they're trying to do just the craziest stuff. And like at the end, my girlfriend's here and my dad, I haven't seen in 12 years is here. So his energy is just like, so <laughs> Yeah, I'm going to strip everything off and basically, right. So I don't know. The, it was definitely, there's a lot of rom-com elements, but what I love about this movie, it's so multifaceted. There's so many reasons to enjoy it. And I think like that is definitely one, one way to view it, one way to enjoy it. Yeah. So. I, I agree with both of you guys. I think the, the biggest, the biggest um, differentiator here is that, like as Cody said, the romance part of it isn't central to the movie. You can mm. you can maybe call it a romantic comedy given the last shot of the movie is William yeah. and Jocelyn, but really the movie is not about that. Still, what I like about the romantic element of this is that Jocelyn herself and the romance between the two of them isn't it doesn't feel like a throwaway in the movie Mm -hmm. it feels real it feels necessary to the story and jocelyn feels like an actual character an actual like plot mover at times and not just an object that our main character interacts with here and there she's her own person and she is and like you said paul her love interest with william is so fleshed out because there is like a fun cat and mouse and there's also her affecting the plot if she affects how he performs in matches yeah. and stuff. So yeah, I think it's like, I think if you, if you just had to put a label on it, I'd say it's like an action comedy with a really good love subplot. Like, yeah. like, like of like, of like of movies that have like women who are in it for explicitly the romantic lead. She's given way more to do and has a way better character than a lot of like, just kind of throwaway romantic leads. Mm. Yeah. She, she's really a vehicle for self-exploration for William. Like he learns about, you know, I shouldn't just focus on winning. Like there's something to be said about love in itself, like for the woman, not as a trophy. Um, you know, I'm going to prioritize my dad. Like she brings her dad, uh, his dad to the, you know, so she, I don't know. I feel like she kind of is a facilitates some of the deeper themes that you can flesh out of the movie too, which is interesting, but Right. Well, um, Matthew, any other thoughts on this movie that we really need to we need to get to before we before we say goodbye? Honestly, no. I I think I just turned it on and I just was instantly smiling. I was just like, right when I started, I don't know about you guys, but I was like, this this movie is just so fun. Like it's just always a good time. Um, and I was so excited to watch it, you know. Um, because you can watch it in so many different ways. You can go in between the lines, you can kind of sit back and just laugh. So no, I think I said anything that I wanted to say, and I'm just glad I was able to talk about it with you guys. Well, thanks so much for coming on, Matthew. It's, it was great to have you, and hopefully we, uh, we'll get you back for, for another movie or maybe book reaction in the future. Absolutely. All right. Take it easy, buddy. We love you. All right. Now, before we go today, we have a couple uh, things that I want to get to. So firstly... Uh, we can announce our next book, which I'm super excited to start reading. We are going to start next time with Where the Crawdads Sing. Recently, a movie came out. No idea 
Um, any, I've never read this book. I haven't seen the movie, so I'm excited. You know, New York Times bestseller it should be a ton of fun. Really excited. So stay tuned for that. I also wanted to end our episode today. We had a submission from a listener about some of the Canterbury Tales stuff that we were talking about previously. So our listener writes in, what are y'all's thoughts on Chaucer being a feminist? It's interesting how, though there is definitely normal sexism for the time running through the Canterbury Tales, he gives female characters a voice at all, and the wife of Bath's tale is obviously a feminist tale. The female characters seem to be on equal footing with the men in the book, and the women in many of the characters' stories are far more virtuous than many of the men, frequently described as pious, persevering, and loyal. What do you think about Chaucer's views on women and why he included the wife of Bath's tale in particular? Cody, do you want to take a take a first stab at that? Absolutely. I think Chaucer has probably one of the most progressive views of women's place in society of a lot of his, most likely his contemporaries. I got to admit, I'm not super educated in either feminist theory or a lot of other contemporary medieval fiction writers at the time. So please, if you have another counterexample, we'd be happy to hear about it. Bibliotheques at gmail.com. But if we're just isolating this work on itself, I think the listener is exactly right. This is, you know, definitely a feminist tale. A lot of the times when we have this these stories with a lot of sexism in it, these are portrayed as obviously bad guys. The men perpetrating these acts are usually the villains, if not the person who's the butt of the joke. Um, and at its worst, Chaucer will input his own thoughts saying, hey, don't do this. Mm-hmm. Like he'll break the fourth wall to address the reader directly to emphasize it just in case the message wasn't as clear because maybe the subject matter was worse than others. And a lot of times there's stories where like the wife of Bass Tale is exactly that. I mean, it's it's basically women allowing a man to be redeemed. Mm-hmm. He has to go out and prove his worth to a woman, which is unlike any of the other stories um, where a man just kind of like does has to correct something he's already done to a woman that he's already earned. There's a lot going on in them, but I think that I think that the listeners I, I agree with I agree with the listener 100 percent. Yeah. You know, I so. Cody, I would echo just about everything you said. And I think the qualifying the qualifying thing I'll say here is that, yes, I would consider Chaucer a feminist in his time, mm-hmm. right? Because like the listener notices, the wife of Bath's tale, which if you don't remember, the wife of Bath's tale is essentially about that guy going out looking for what it is that every woman wants most of all and finds out what this is from this woman he's he isn't executed as a result ends up with this very like haggardly woman but is rewarded by giving her the choice to either be beautiful and you know not trustworthy or ugly and loyal um he's rewarded by getting the best of both worlds so just a quick recap on that that does feel like a, a feminist tale there, along with, you know, the wife of Bath just as an actual character on our on our story, having some more like sexual liberation kind of ideals and not getting worried about being married five times. That feels much more modern than much of the other stories in this collection. The the thing that I will say though is when you are talking about the place 
of women in these stories, that is where I would push back a little bit. Because when we're talking about the virtue of women, largely what we're talking about is how it is in relation to either their husband or a man who is courting them, Mm -hmm. right? And that is, it's a minor kind of nitpick, I guess. But if we're going to talk about the virtues of women, I would prefer that we're exploring outside of just what makes you chaste or, you know, loyal to your husband in Mm -hmm. that, in that case. And I feel like that is what is represented a lot in this book. The alternative, like the other way that we're talking about virtue for women is again in one of these tales where this woman is like sent out to sea and is just continuously very loyal to God, right? And and that's good too, but once again, it feels like we're putting like the measure of of women in general at like kind of how can we be as close to the Virgin Mary as humanly possible? And so I agree with the listener that yes, Chaucer is more feminist than probably like you said Cody most of his contemporaries at the time, but part of part of where I would push back is how we're talking about the virtue of women and what we're trying to stack them up against. Mm-hmm. But thank you to our listener for that. We love getting those uh, submissions. If you have any thoughts, and it could be you're listening to an old episode, let us know. We're happy to go back and talk about any of the themes of our previous books. Doesn't yep. have to be from the last episode. Shoot us an email at bibliotakes at gmail.com. We'd be happy to address it on the pod. We're looking forward to getting started with uh, Where the Crawdads Sing. That'll be coming at you guys really quick. But until then, thank you for listening. And this has been the Bibliotheques Podcast. We'll see you all soon.